Meanwhile... Words that you say, the 
What do we have here then? Mid Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to. And when you've got this much food that you need to dish up, of course you need something that cuts like a knife. In my memory, I think that was around the time that Brian Adams had his cuts like a knife hit. But maybe uh, the timing is off. I can't. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Who can say? We got a pretty good chat going already, and that is because we are serving up some Thanksgiving leftovers this week. And you know, I realized ever since I got this Chris and Cozy record. Uh, when I was working at the um, uh, So Lame Records store here in town, that brief three or four month period. Uh, uh, ever since I got that record, I have been listening to it over and over again. I, there's something about that album that's, uh, I mean, it, it's it's like remixes and stuff. It's, it's it's not even a full album. I think it's just a few songs, but uh, it, it's uh, it's 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 very good. I'm 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 quite enjoying. It. And, you know, it was that kind of situation where I've got, like, all sorts of things lying around the Lava Lamp Lounge. I got a little hunk of this and a little slab of that. And, 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 and over in that dish over there, I got something. And I, I, it just a lot of things that I have been trying to kind of uh, find places for. And not really uh, sure exactly where to fit them in. Because they, 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 they just don't, don't always fit, if you know what I mean. So... There's going to be a lot of little things kind of all working together around each other to to, to, to build a, a cohesive whole. Uh, and uh, uh, if it seems like you're just kind of picking out of a bunch of dish, different dishes and, and, and whatnot, then, uh, well, that's kind of what's going on. Let's say hello to uh, Imaginos and Chriso. Uh, thank you very much, Chriso, for helping out on the last hour uh, with Post Consumer, who is also in the chat. Uh, always a delight when Post Consumer comes to the wiggle room to do a little wiggling. And uh, uh, yeah, a great set last uh, last hour. And, and, and Chris was helping out, which I always appreciate. We also have H uh, and uh, Cat in the Chat. Now you know it's a party when the cats show up. That's always that's always a bonus. Ramen City, USA. Ah, yes, fantastic. And uh, Univac, uh, who is going to be on the program actually in a few weeks for our Xmas show, I should say. <laughs> uh, Univac, who I actually do a show with once a month uh, with a Big City Orchestra. We, we are kind of a, um, a part of the reserve team of Big City Orchestra. And uh, we, we show up uh, on the fourth Sundays, and uh, we do a little dance, uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we just had our, our November Drone uh, episode uh, uh, on Sunday, uh, which is going to be actually replayed on Thursday morning on uh, the station that that happens on. So, um, so yeah, uh, um, dfm.nu. Uh, I guess I can say that because it's all on the internet. <laughs> But this is uh, Sheena's Jungle Room here uh, for uh, uh, WFMU listeners and fans and friends. Uh, and we got something else going on entirely. Now, uh, up next, 
uh, you know, someone who I have uh, had the pleasure of speaking with and, and uh, 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 listening to new albums of is uh, Mr. Martin Newell of The Cleaners from Venus, uh, a gentleman who is uh, a, a, a bon vivant and a storyteller, a poet, a, a musician, a, a, an, an English cad, a, 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 a wonderful gentleman. Um, and uh, uh, we happen to have a different connection to him, uh, myself and uh, uh, Heather, who is often in the chat, um, because uh, uh, we uh, are uh, a little bit interested in his connection to the world of Max Hedrum. As it happens, Martin Newell and Steve Roberts, who wrote Max Hedrum, uh, were friends. Uh, they they uh, one uh, rented a flat to the other, or or house or home. I can't. I don't know uh, exactly what the terminology is, but uh, either way, uh, they spent some time together. Uh, and I, I do. I just love the image of uh, in, in, in one room. You've got uh, Martin crafting some cleaners from Venus tunes. And in the other room, you've got Steve crafting Max Hedrum. <laughs> the UK is a wild place. Ah, Jeff Yu has shown up. Ah, always, oh, I do love Jeff Yu. One of the few people I've actually seen in person this year um, at, a, at a show, an outdoor noise show, actually. We need to make that happen again um, this uh, this up, up, upcoming uh summer that, that, that was a lot of fun anywho this is a little bit a little tidbit uh, where the worlds of uh, martin newell and steve roberts collide uh and it's a, a story taken directly from martin newell's uh biography autobiography actually and it goes a little something like this it's mid-valley mutations here with the thanksgiving leftovers all the stuff that we've been meaning to get to here on sheena's jungle Week. What do we have here then? Mid Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to. I sat with a two liter bottle of cider in one hand and a roll up in the other watching the video screen in my landlord Steve's living room. Roger Maynard, then a news presenter at BBC East in Norwich, was interviewing a young man. The young man, in his 20s, was dressed almost entirely in black, his thin face appearing more gaunt for a surfeit of smeared mascara. He lurched uneasily in his seat as he fielded the interviewer's questions. Did he think, asked Roger Maynard, that a record whose subject matter mentioned unemployment and drugs was relevant as an educational aid for youngsters? The young man stared vacantly at the camera. Well, it's gotta be better than rock climbing and the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, ain't it? <laughs> he slurred. Then he laughed, lurching almost out of his seat. Even I, by this time well numbed with cider, was slightly shocked as I watched the video recording of my first live TV appearance. Everyone apparently had seen it. The pub, so Steve said, had been abuzz with it earlier. Even an uncle of mine in distant Buckinghamshire had witnessed it. Shortly afterwards, during the course of a telephone conversation, he told me quietly that he thought I'd let myself down. It hadn't been the plan, 
put a sharp black outfit together. A little bit rock and roll, maybe, but smartish. It was on the train to the Norwich studio that I noticed my throat was swollen, my head ached, and I felt slightly otherworldly. The meet and greet person at the sea showed me into the green room, which they still had in those days, pointed to a large drinks cabinet, and gave me one of those, you know what to do, gestures. No sooner had the door closed than I'd sprung briskly up and mixed myself a whiskey mac. Then quickly, another. Still, no one came to collect me, so I had a third. I now felt confident, witty, erudite. Thus began my so-called f***ing TV career. A few days earlier, my mom had telephoned me at 7.30 a.m. and said, You're in the Daily Mail. They say that a Dolan drugs record written by a part-time washer-up has been sent out to hundreds of schools as an educational aid. And a Tory MP, Nick Budgen, has condemned you publicly. She sounded rather more excited than alarmed about it. On Radio 1, the DJ Dave Lee Travis was playing Young Jobless at lunchtimes. The record company informed me that my disc had been C-listed, which meant sporadic airplay. The drive-time DJ, Peter Powell, had played it too. night or so, I'd be washing up at the restaurant on a busy lunchtime schedule, and I'd suddenly hear Max Volume's guitar riff chugging in as my record came on. Hey, that's my record again! I'd squeal. The whole shift would come to a halt until it was finished. regular Radio 1 airplay. One evening, they played it on Radio 4's PM News Show. I never heard it, of course. In those days, I only ever listened to pop music stations. Because of that particular news item, some high up at EMI Records had also heard it. The next thing you know, along with Chris and Stuart from Off Street Records, I'm sitting upstairs at EMI's Manchester Square HQ, negotiating a one-off, piss-poor, 4% record and distribution deal. Yeah. 
record was hurriedly released on EMI's Liberty label. Now we were motoring. We sealed it with a lukewarm bottle of Chablis, which I'd found while nosing around in their broken fridge, when instead I should have been listening to what was being said. Bogs later, just along the corridor, I met Mincy, a cheerfully ebullient singer of the angelic upstarts. Do some f-ing work, you lazy bastards! <laughs> he yelled in broad Geordie as we passed back through the typing pool together. On the way back up to the meeting room, finding myself on the wrong staircase, I met a few glamorous looking new romantic types. Tablecloths over shoulders, leather trousers, and big 80s hair. They all had flutes of cold fizzy in their hands. I was informed that it was some kind of reception for Dexie's Midnight Runners. And then there's me, Chris and Stuart crammed upstairs in an office with a paper cup full of warm Chablis each and a song about the plight of our unemployed youth. Every expense spared then. Oh, monsieur, you're really spoiling us with your music bees. Hospitality. Jobless. I was introduced to their PR person. I think he was called Brian. He was to be in charge of promoting Young Jobless. We immediately got off on the wrong foot. This record of yours, then, what's it all about, he asked. I looked at him, slightly nonplussed. Ah, I said, it's called Young Jobless. I pointed out the window into the drizzly London afternoon and said, you see that out there? He nodded. I said, well, that's what we call normality. And I've just written this song about young people who, because of various political and sociological circumstances, now can't get jobs. So, mm, basically, there are a lot of young, unemployed youngsters out there, just in case you didn't know. He looked at me crossly and replied, I was aware of it, actually. I was only joking. Young jobless. really. Always saying the wrong things to the wrong people at the wrong time. In early 1981, I was unversed in the ways of the media, what they're like, and what they may do if they want to take advantage of you. Bear in mind that I was a straight-from-central, casting British rock and roll wazic, who might have easily have fitted into the mockumentary band Spinal Tap. If I told them once, I told them a hundred times Spinal Tap first and Puppet Show last. I was chiefly interested in rock music and how I might make a living from it. I had only the fuzziest ideas of what was happening in the wider world outside. 
I had, however, one other disadvantage, which would take over three more decades for me to discover. Being slightly aspergic, I couldn't read people's faces. I didn't always know when people were taking the piss or when they were lying to me. I also didn't know when I'd said too much, said the wrong thing, or sometimes even what to say at all. I mostly hit it by drinking. Naturally, the media corpse made mincemeat out of me. I do not feel aggrieved about this. Not now, anyway. As I'm always saying, there are no victims, only volunteers. But I do kind of wish that back then there'd been someone at my side as a guide. Or maybe even a referee to blow a whistle and stop play when it became too cruel. Because my wisdom, such as it now exists, has been hard-earned and a long time coming. What do we have here then? Mid-Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to. And just uh, popping in here to say thank you, Heather, who is uh, in the chat, actually, uh, for reading that section. I, I, I was mistaken because I in, in my head I have uh, combined all of Martin's uh, biography into one gigantic book, but apparently there are separate books that have different parts of Martin's life. Uh, this is from uh, the second uh, book, apparently. But thank you very much, uh, Heather, for reading that uh, section. That uh, uh, had significance for Heather and I because of our Max Hedrum podcast that we do together. Uh and, and that little chunk, accompanied by a, a, a little conversation with Steve about living with uh, Martin and um, selling cars, because uh, uh, Steve's uh, very, very, very first career was a used car salesman, but a, a fancy used car salesman. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, that is all kind of uh, uh, Max Hedrum stuff. But uh, the, the Young Jobless song, man, man, that, that is an earworm uh, du jour uh, that I've just had in my head for for most of 2023, and uh, due to a few different uh, things that I have discovered this year, uh, uh, and then just of course remembering, uh, you know, life uh, as a, a younger, scruffier gentleman. Uh, uh, that story really hits home quite quite hard. So. 
We love you, Martin. Uh, I, I, we should reach out and, and, and talk to him again. I'm sure he's got a new album that he's working on, and, and, and he uh, has uh, delightful stories. Uh, he, he usually posts uh, performances, live performances of, of him kind of warming up uh, on social media, uh, if you are on social media and, and, and friends with him. Uh, he's uh, uh, worth uh, checking out. Oh, I see a post-consumer is uh, still hanging out with us uh, and whatnot. Uh, we're, we're digging into the leftovers tonight. We got all sorts of things. And, and I figured up next here, I, I got kind of a, a, a longer set that I'm going to uh, uh, lay on you of just different things that have kind of shown up in the uh, in the Lava Lamp Lounge this year. Things that I, I've been a fan of, things that I've been wanting to play more of, uh, I, I, I pulled out the record player, plugged in the CD players, kind of, kind of. Uh, I, I think there's even a tape in here somewhere. So like, it, it was a lot of fun to throw this little set together. Just stuff that I, I want to hear more of in my life, and uh, they haven't really fit in anywhere else. So we're gonna hear them today here as part of our Thanksgiving leftovers. Stuff I've been meaning to get to. And I think that's going to bring us to the top of the hour. Stay tuned. We have a, a kind of a interactive uh, video audio uh, situation going on uh, for hour two. Uh, but uh, we'll get to that later. I, you know, Barno, I do know about the, uh, the anniversary of the uh, signal intrusion uh, uh, situation. I, I wrote a very long essay. Uh, recently about um, uh, the Max Headroom signal intrusion and kind of a- analyzed some stuff. And, and, and uh, <clears throat> there's a, a documentary that kind of does a, a 90 minutes on, on the signal intrusion. And, and we both kind of came to the same conclusion that um, it was probably somebody who worked in radio at the time, but it's less interesting to know who, or sorry, television at the time, but it's less interesting to know who it was than it is to have it just be a weird thing that happened out in the world, which uh, I always uh, I always appreciate knowing that there are some weird things that happen out in the world, and the mystery will never be answered. But yes, uh, 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 I could go on and on about Max Hedrum for hours, and in fact, I do on a separate podcast. That's not this show. Let's get back to uh, this show. It's uh, Mid-Valley Mutations with some Thanksgiving leftovers. Sort of like this one. What do we have here then? Mid-Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to.
plains where cattle were lowing. Gone are the fields where clover was growing. Nothing is left and soon I'll be going. Down the tumbleweed trail Where is the gal I knew in Wyoming? Where are the songs she sang in the gloaming? Gone like the wind that started her roaming Down the tumbleweed trail Sweetheart of mine, I'll find you I know you passed this way And I'm not far behind you I'll meet you some sweet day And I will linger part from you never just as we promised, always together Glad that we found this land of forever Down the tumbleweed trail Sweetheart of mine, I'll find you I know you passed this way I'm not far behind you I'll meet you some sweet day And I will linger part from you never Just as we promised always together Glad that we found this land of forever
village. What do you want? Information. You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I'm not a number. I'm a free man. Thank you. 
that's stupid punk rock. I don't, you know, I just think of it as rock and roll because that's what it is. You should be fabulous, dear. Oh, punk dream. Heavy metal, mate. Music of the angels. Brandy of the damned. Punks of the world, you not more love. Give it a bit of the welly. Hey, hey, We are both huge fans of Blank Red. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a network linker. It's a bit out of your league, isn't it, Paula? So, what do you trade for it? Hmm. What's that? It's a book. Well, what's that? It's a non-volatile storage medium. It's very rare. You should have one. Stuff it! Oh. <laughs> Hello, Dominique. Yeah, my favorite character, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess in terms of my um, curiosity about it, like, this was something where I think um, growing up, this was my first exposure to any kind of punk rock at all. Uh, and it seems like the writers on the show get punk rock uh it doesn't seem like you guys are you know like kind of guessing like oh i wonder how these guys would act god you're such a poser and so i was just kind of curious were you close to the culture or were you a fan or were you just a very keen observer (laughs) well the answer to that is that blank reg of course was was um a a wonderful creation largely because of morgan shepherd who was blank reg I got the job because, uh, would you shave your head? I said, yeah, you're going to pay me a little extra? And they went, yeah. Will you wear a mohawk? Yeah, okay. You know, he likes rock and roll. I went, and I said, yeah. He said, loves Elvis. I said, no. <laughs> Rocky went, really? I said, no. You know, Jerry Garcia loves the Grateful Dead. Blair Ranch. I play Grateful Dead on Wednesdays. Writing him was easy because, uh, you know, London was full of blank regs, except they didn't have Mohicans. But as all these blokes are always, you know, like this, isn't it? Uh, and they've always got a smart comeback. And, uh, yeah, nothing's too difficult. Don't you worry, leave it to me, mate, and all that. And you just inhabit their world, stick a Mohican haircut on it and make him 50 instead of 15. And you've, that's it, you've done it. I mean, and, and then it's just enjoying evolving that character because he's in your own head. And, um, yeah, we, we loved uh, Morgan. He was just terrific, absolutely Top of the tree geezer, you know, regular geezer. So what it was was that um, they couldn't find funny and dangerous. They could find funny biker, they could find dangerous biker, but they couldn't find funny and dangerous. And because I come of a culture whereby you, you know, the Liverpool kiss is uh, often used in order to settle discussion. His performances are just incredible because they're so charming, but he's also like. A pretty good street thug, you know. I would, I wouldn't want to mess with him in a scrap at all. Yes, uh, very much so. Uh, and the, one of the lines that that I enjoyed very much was uh, describing his attitude to the whole thing, you know, which was um, when when the, the, the shit began to hit the fan and they realised that they were in trouble and somebody wanted to get hold of this machine and all the rest of it. His immediate reaction is, "I'm going to put the wheels of the bus back on just in case." And and in that you realise that 
something you never previously knew, which was, you know, the bus was up on bricks in some corner of East London somewhere, and he's just going to get the wheels up again so he can get going. And that's the sort of stuff, you know, that just comes from knowing people who are like that. Well, thank you to the uh, East End Thug for an inspirational talk. And that's the simple truth. And interestingly, we wanted at one time, uh, Matt Frewer and I were very uh, delighted at the idea of doing another Max, you know, where, where would you go next with this? And it actually began um, with um, uh, Blank Reg having taken over uh, the network and at the beginning of the new show he was in the suit with all the bling and all the stuff uh, but still with the Mohican uh, and very fed up with it because the big time bus was down below in the middle of this huge uh, uh, galleried area on a plinth at a weird angle like a jet fighter because, you know, that had been the beginning of big time television which is now a 400-storey uh, edifice in the middle of the city and it begins with him. But, of course, this is a show that will never be made because of all the... Um, the, the problematical legal egos that are involved in this whole thing. Nobody will let anybody else do it, you know. And uh, so it's just not going to happen, which is a pity. It doesn't stop us writing it, though. A few tidbits about coming up with the character of Blank Reg. I particularly like the idea that Steve just saw a connection between your typical East End thug in London and teen punks, and, well, the rest is history. Yeah, it's my washing machine, it's broken. Yeah, could you send round an East End thug? Thanks. Yeah, it's just uh, through here. It's around, it's around here. There it is. Switch it on, then it just completely cuts out. Are you happy to be here while I do this? Y yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just doing a bit of tidying up. So. Okay. Off you go. All right. Thanks. There's a gentleman here paid a lot of money for you and he's not very happy. If you don't start turning, I'm going to tear you apart so totally you'll look like a fucking Meccano set, you cheap piece of metalised crap. Punks in the world, you not fall up! Give it a bit of the welly! Hey, hey, ah! Fabulous, dear.
though sometimes, isn't it? What do we have here then? Mid Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to. Ah, yes. Please, uh, help yourself to some more. Uh, there's, there's plenty where that came from. Yeah, just enjoying some uh, bits and bobs left around the, the Lava Lamp Lounge that didn't really have a home. And then, of course, uh, I love uh, playing those clips from our 20 Minutes Into the Future podcast because, one, Heather is often in the chat hanging out uh, during this show, and so I thought it was kind of nice to play those because uh, 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 we did made those together. And uh, also, uh, I think in both cases, I can play them uncensored because we have made the choice for our podcast to keep it PG. But uh, Sheena's doesn't have that problem. <laughs> so you get to hear Steve Roberts swear. You get to uh, hear the East End thug swear. Uh, you get to hear all the swearing. It's, 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 it's delightful. So we are going to switch gears here uh, in a moment, but I'm going to uh, put something in uh, the the, uh, the playlist here, uh, a link, actually. Uh, and if you want to play along at home, we're going to have some uh, AV content, uh, some video that you can lis- watch while you listen. Uh, now, uh, the, the cool thing is is that the, uh, the radio program that uh, you're hearing right now uh, no matter what you choose to do, is going to be different than the audio that you will hear in the video in the link that I have just posted in the playlist. So hopefully that follows. If you load up the video from the link in the playlist, you won't hear what I'm about to play for you next. So you kind of need both. But uh, what, what, what's happening here? Uh, I'll give you a little backstory. Uh, so I collaborated with uh, DOS from Big City Orchestra for a uh, cable access program that he hosts uh, where it's, it features music and uh, video. I think uh, the usual situation is someone uh, makes the music part, uh, DOS makes the video part, and then they play it on their cable access show, uh, which I think is once a month. And uh, anyway, they've been doing this for a while. Uh, I finally got to do one uh, back in October. And uh, we worked on a piece uh, I call The Secret Room. And uh, the the story on this is that um, uh, I I had this uh, music bit that I uh, had made. And then uh, I had this short story that I had written uh, about a a place in Eugene that I used to live. Uh, And then... um, yeah, uh, we decided that the video version for uh, the Cable Access show kind of worked for that particular context, since they were doing two of them and whatnot, uh, without the narrative portion. So I axed the story, just gave them the music. The video looks great. But there's this uh, second version of it that was floating around that kind of didn't get heard, hadn't, hasn't really uh, had its chance to... To, to make it out into the world. 
And so uh, you can hear it two different ways. Uh, one, uh, you can watch along with the video using the link that I uh, posted in the chat, or you can just listen. It works uh, in both mediums, in both versions, but I uh, thought I'd try a little experiment to see if anybody wants to try to do a, 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 an AV combo as, the, as this unlo- unravels. And yeah, uh, so uh, we're going to play this story up next, uh, The Secret Room, uh, a, a bit of a tribute to uh, what life was like living in uh, Eugene in the, in the late 90s. Thanks, everybody, for uh, sticking around. Uh, this has been a kind of a fun uh, night uh, to kind of um, just you know, play a bunch of things that were left over. And uh, now we're going to play this. Enjoy. What do we have here then? Mid-Valley. Thanksgiving leftovers. Mutations. Some things we've been meaning to get to. The Secret Room. I'd gotten a call from a mutual friend, offering me lodging with them in a set of rooms above a restaurant, a few doors down from the library where I would regularly run into said friend, as we both combed the stacks, looking for something to pass the time between shifts at work. The last time we'd run into each other, while I was perusing a Richard Meltzer text and she was checking out a couple of horror collections, we had related our mutual hardships to each other, re places to live. I was recently single, and as such, I decided to let my partner keep the apartment, so her and her new beau could nest happily, while I retreated to sleeping on the floor in the living room of a friend's pad while he and his new girlfriend were all too happy to wander off and start making out while I raided the fridge for a beer or two to drown my sorrows in. My mutual library friend, Caroline, was worse off. Their landlord, a scummy guy with the last name of Rankin, who seemed to have a lot of places for rent that were always just barely usable spaces, had suddenly decided to evict everyone in a fourplex he managed, and failed to provide much of a reason or time for them to move out. We both, suddenly, were in search of a place to live, and promised that we would get together soon to commiserate over coffee in the near future, possibly to look at apartment listings. So when Caroline called me and said she found a place, and they needed another person, and would I be interested, I was initially just expecting a cup of French press, and possibly a scone. But my confusion soon gave way to plotting and planning. 
we all arranged to arrive at the new pad at the same time, since there was only one key, initially. At first I was given a pretty crummy room, sort of in the middle of the place, that had no outside windows, and no closet space. But at this stage in my life, I only owned a futon with no frame, and lived out of a few boxes anyway. I set up what little I had in my room, plugged in the radio and the computer, and considered myself to have a home address once again. Caroline and Sinclair moved into the pad as a couple, with myself and Josh rounding out the household. But within a couple of months, the true nature of the place evolved into a more or less constant party pad, rather than down-home living accommodations or anything like that. It wasn't long before the lock on the front door was broken, and people came and left as they pleased. Often I would return from work, soaked from all the dishwashing, to find that there was a party in effect, but none of my roommates were home. While an environment like this might seem like the kind of Dionysian fun that a young person would love, the constant drinking, and not being able to trust that food you put in the fridge would still be there an hour later, began to wear on me as I tried to make time with the various women who would just show up at our place for the inevitable party that they had heard of via the gossip train. None of these women were interested in me, just the chance to tie one on with some friends at some place that seemed agreeable enough. I started to realize it was little more than a crash pad with a constant parade of young and energetic people who were ready to drink. Like with all good things, the party had to come to an end eventually. The first sign of unraveling was when Caroline and Sinclair broke up. I wasn't really privy to specifics, 
but I was certainly part of the aftermath, as we both turned to each other in an effort to try and pass the time, while Sinclair slowly removed himself from our lives. For a brief moment, I imagined that perhaps this was the beginning of a new chapter that involved myself and Caroline? But instead, she soon moved to Portland to start over again, just in time for me to get a note from Josh, explaining that he had found other hippies that liked video games too, and they were all going to rent a new place together. It took three whole months before our place completely unraveled, culminating in a hilarious incident where I introduced myself to the landlord, explained that all the other tenants had moved away, and that if he would please accept a check from me and not ask too many more questions, I would be happy to keep paying the rent. Miraculously, the landlord seemed to be happy to take any check he could get, and with a month ahead of me, I set about the task of cleaning the place, which I nicknamed the Blitz House because there were so many empty Blitz beer cans and bottles everywhere. There was a large living room and dining room, in which a couch was left behind, and a crummy table that I believe Josh decided he didn't need. There was also a kitchen and two bathrooms, and for some reason both were fully stocked with plenty of dishes and towels and soaps and whatnot, again, thanks to left-behind items from previous tenants. Two of the rooms were now furnished with shelves and dressers that had been abandoned. After I'd collected all the clothes I found, I bagged it all up and took it down to second thoughts, and actually managed to net $50, all told. There was plenty of garbage left behind, too. Since there was no one to argue with anymore, I moved into the nice room with windows and a small balcony, in spite of not really having much to fill the room up with. Clock ticking, I began to contact all my usual friends and bandmates, considering the notion that I could populate the place with people that I selected. Clay immediately said yes, and two days later was moving stuff into his own room. I could never convince the other two guys in my band to join us, but soon they were both regular fixtures on the weekends, partying with us anyway. Through Clay, I found two more roommates, a girl named Lori and a gent named Robert. 
The Blitz House was a strange set of rooms, with a massive utility space that snaked around the side and back of the building. And there were weird nooks and spaces that someone with a lot of creativity, but not a lot of resources, managed to turn into a livable place. Even if parts of certain walls were completed with random doors, for example. But given the size of the utility space, and other locations that we could section off and make into rooms, we quickly hit upon the idea of renting out more spaces in the Blitz House than there were actual legitimate rooms. Lori knew another girl, Catherine, who was taking courses at the University of the Street, and Clay's friend Mona was looking for a transitional place too. It was Robert and Catherine's idea that we should have a once-a-month dinner where we all contribute what we can. And it was at the first of these that Lori joked, we should start looking for crusty punks so we can start stacking them in like cordwood. Imagine how cheap our rent would be if we split it with 50 street kids. I was astonished at how quickly we were able to rebuild a home like that and how quickly our inside jokes seemed to evolve into something meaningful. As our tenants kept turning over, and as I kept reworking our apartments, I once made the comment that I would have to start discovering new rooms to help keep up with the demand. So I was actually quite shocked to discover a secret room in the Blitz House, one afternoon when I'd had too many extra cups of coffee and was on a bit of a cleaning spree. For context, there was a hall that bisected the entire top floor of the Blitz House. And off the hall was access to the various rooms, with the main living room creating a T at the end. Off the main hall was a short walkway that ended in a window with a door on either side. One of those doors was to the first bathroom. The other door was one of the many decorative doors, as I'd come to call them. On the one side of this decorative door was supposed to be the room I was in, and inside my room, there was no access to any kind of door like this. It was just a wall on that side. In the process of dusting and wiping and cleaning, I bumped up against this decorative door to find that it gave slightly, as if it could open. 
In disbelief, I turned the knob and found that not only did it open, but that there was a space beyond it. I grabbed a flashlight from the utility drawer in the kitchen and then opened the door again to investigate further. Inside was a small room, about 20 feet by 20 feet, with a 12-foot ceiling above. Not nearly as big as the room I currently stayed in, which had a nice window view, and seemed otherwise very simple. There were a few electrical outlets, an overhead light, and a very small closet, with space enough to store some boxes and perhaps hang some shirts. What was completely perplexing about the room was that, according to the layout of the house as I understood it, this space was between six inches of wall. This new room opened up into a world that couldn't and shouldn't exist where I was able to access it. There was a part of me that was so unnerved by this discovery that I couldn't bring myself to believe that it was true for a very long time. I would leave the room, close the door, and walk away, assuming it wouldn't be there the next time I would check and that I had been hallucinating. And eventually, I would come back, expecting the door to be nailed in place like I thought it had been. Another strange and decorative oddity in a place full of them like the strange carving in wood over one of the doorways that read Sam I am. But every time I went back, the door opened, and I could look out the window and watch the strange skyline of a city I had never seen before wondering what it was, and how I could get to it. But the window was at least four stories up, as near as I could figure. Maybe higher? And if I were to climb out and down, could I ever get back?
by one, I began to ask the other roommates if they had noticed anything strange about the extra door next to the bathroom, avoiding being very specific, hoping not to taint the results of the question I was asking. But none of them seemed to notice much of anything about the door, or any of the decorative doors in that place. And Robert wasn't even sure what I was talking about at first, until we walked over there and looked at it together. He claimed to have never noticed it before, which seemed both completely unlikely and eerily possible. Something about this door really didn't draw anyone's attention specifically, in a way that I found extremely curious. A week passed, and I began to get a little more bold with my questions about the door. Have any of you ever tried to open it? I would ask, usually to a laugh or disbelief. So much so that I could never adequately convince anyone to try and open it, or any of the decorative doors for that matter. Why? so I can fall for some prank? No thanks. One by one, they all had reasons to suspect that the door I had walked through was nothing more than a strange part of the wall. I was nervous to just blurt out that there was a room on the other side, as I wasn't quite sure what to make of the fact that only I had found it. But, so far anyway, every time I opened it, there was still a room inside. At least, it never seemed to disappear, even when I wasn't in it. One day I decided to start decorating the room, not really thinking about why, 
but putting a desk and a chair in it, and a table with a plant on top. A humble bookshelf, and even a small radio. It seemed weird to go in there without any kind of furnishing, and every so often I would think of something and go on a quest through the local thrift stores to find the right kind of lamp, or a print for the wall, for example. In some ways, it was like decorating the inside of my mind. I couldn't share it with anyone, and I felt as if doing so would cause it to vanish, somehow. It clearly defied all logic or reason. No physical or scientific explanation could account for a small room like that existing between the walls of my current apartment. And that view. It wasn't like any view of Rockland that I was familiar with. This was something else, somewhere distant, somewhere special, but where? The Blitz house managed to get along well enough on its own, occasionally needing a new roommate here, or a bit of discussion there. In the early days, I was very involved in all the decisions regarding who could live with us. But as time went on, and the secret room began to preoccupy most of my waking thoughts, I let Robert handle those kinds of things, as he was much more organized, and more pointedly, had a lot of thoughts about what would make a good roommate. In some ways, I started to only have a passing interest in my life in the Blitz House. After work, I preferred to sneak off into the secret room, where I would watch the skyline of that unknown city and try to imagine what was happening to the other people that lived within my view. While I never slept in the room, I often wanted to, and it was only out of fear that I might cross some sort of line in my relationship with the space that I respected this particular boundary. And in doing so, it was always there the next time I would reach for the knob to go inside. It seemed like only occasionally that anyone even noticed that I was gone. And in spite of what I thought were obvious opportunities for my roommates to catch me in the act, no one ever saw me going in or out. I thought about trying to share this discovery with somebody, but consistently found myself unsure as to who this mythical person could be. 
occasionally I would get the idea that it could be this person, or that person. But in the end, I never went through with it. I have no idea where I got this notion, but I strongly felt I couldn't spoil the secret, that there would be consequences if I did. Eventually, I gave up on the idea and realized that the best I could do would be to document the room and what I saw through the window while I could. some simple composition books from the corner store and began to spend an inordinate amount of time filling page after page with thoughts about the space. First, I wrote down the story of finding it. Then, I began to consider how the room came to be and what its original purpose must have been, using mostly conjecture and speculation as to those matters. And when I had exhausted those ideas, I began to describe each house and building I could see through the window, making up elaborate stories and characters, trying to bring some life to something that I could only catch glimpses of from where I sat. The cityscape before me in the secret room seemed to be older, but also out of time. like it was possibly from the future, or at least a certain view of it. Occasionally, you would see something flying through the sky, but at a distance that was hard to determine anything substantive. At the current distance, the people were just big enough to make out only the vaguest impressions of their faces, Were they happy? Maybe. On their way to work or leaving? Possibly. All the buildings looked both familiar and yet unlike anything I'd seen before. With features that seemed both reasonable, windows, doors, roofs, and others that were unfathomable. Were those surveillance cameras? Robotic gargoyles? Some sort of decorative embellishment? The more I thought I understood about the city, the more questions I had, and my own stories and made-up descriptions of what it was all about weren't quite enough to offer anything more than pure fiction. I know better understood what happens in that city from my point of view than you could determine what happens in all the buildings outside your window, only using keen observations and guesswork. 
How close to the truth can any of us get? I let those notebooks accumulate in the room, as I wasn't sure how, or if, I could explain them to anyone who might find them. Then again, would anyone care? The door to the secret room is practically unnoticed by most everyone. It is incredible how focused on our own lives and our own interests we all are. The experiences of people around us are almost unfathomable. And even when we're told, is merely a shadow of their complete life. Were I to talk about the room to someone directly, would they understand what I was saying? Or would they come to a conclusion that made sense to them and move on? I had plenty of theories about how the room persisted in spite of all evidence that it shouldn't and couldn't prove any of them one way or another. I was largely convinced that some force was keeping it a secret, but what or how that force worked, I could not say. During shifts at the pit, I would think of the secret room. When hanging out with my roommates, I would think of it too. When watching TV or reading a book, the room preoccupied my thoughts almost entirely. While I was still nominally interested in finding a date, I seemed to have a much stronger attraction towards writing in my notebooks inside the room afterwards. It started to feel like the room had control over me in some capacity. It's hard to remember exactly the order of the events that happened next. I was spending so much time in the secret room that the matters of the Blitz House itself were not entirely clear to me. So when Robert and Clay mentioned that they were moving out, I was a little shocked. Robert found his own place, and Clay and I had sort of grown apart since the band wasn't really practicing anymore. When I took stock of who was still living with us, 
I realized that everyone else was entirely new. Over the last three years, house rules had evolved into something I only vaguely understood or remembered. Robert showed me the ropes just before he left, explaining the system he devised, but this suddenly felt like I had a new job. Something had changed, and I feared that this was the beginning of the end for me in the secret room. Initially, I tried to find new tenants, but this time around, I had fewer resources to drop on. I had spent so much time ditching my friends to hang out in the secret room that not many of them were very responsive to the idea of helping me out with the rent. Worse still, with Robert gone, my own stability as a landlord seemed to be in question, and it wasn't long before the remaining tenants found new places to live. Once again, I found myself in the position of paying the rent on the entire place for one month, all out of pocket, knowing that I couldn't keep that up for long. I redoubled my recruitment efforts, and even thought I'd managed to find someone, until over coffee, I discovered that this gentleman had a lot of demands, and very little income for someone his age. I was nearly desperate, so I decided to give him a tour of the place anyway. But once inside, he immediately noticed and asked about the extra door next to the bathroom. And I was so incensed, I screamed at him to leave, now, and never return. I'm sure that kid has an insane story about me that he tells at parties, but at the time, it seemed like the only reasonable thing to do. several weeks were spent in an extremely depressed state, where I largely wrote in my notebook inside the secret room, wondering what I could do if I couldn't find another roommate. The notebooks were no longer about the room or the visible skyline, but were just straight journals as I tried to process losing this place that I loved. remember the panic I felt as the rent was due again, and I knew I couldn't pay it, and how overwhelming it all became when I had to admit that I had no idea what I was doing anymore. With tears in my eyes, I went through one last thorough cleaning, this time trying all the decorative doors, just in case. But none of the other ones opened. 
I packed up everything that seemed reasonable to take, which wasn't that much. The Blitz House was essentially a fully furnished set of rooms now, for better or for worse. Sure, I'd lose the cleaning deposit, but after three years, the carpet had been ruined, the stove barely worked anymore, and no amount of scrubbing was going to save that. I would at least clean and straighten up, and make the place look as nice as I could. Do the dishes. The usual. I decided to leave the secret room furnished too. Aside from my notebooks and the texts I placed on the bookshelf, there really wasn't much that I wanted to take. And even the notebooks no longer felt like they were mine, either. They belonged to the world of the room. Perhaps someone would find them someday, and they might know more than I, and they could combine that with these notebooks and draw some sort of conclusion about what this room was for. I'm sure finding the room in this state will beg more questions than answers, and, at least this time, I can offer better clues than the empty room offered me originally. Once I left the room, and the Blitz House, I wound up leaving Rockland altogether, but returned nearly eight years later. I couldn't stand to live in the same town as a secret like the one I'd found, and in spite of knowing about it, I couldn't have access to it, or share it with anyone. It seemed like an itch that I would never be able to scratch, so I moved as far away as I could get and started working in a library in Maine, where I managed to find a quiet but happy life. It was only after Clay sent me a wedding invitation that it occurred to me that I would have the better part of a day, in the morning, to myself, with nothing specific to do. I made sure to reserve a rental car, and woke up far too early.
Having been away for that long seemed like it would be even more difficult to find my way around town. But astonishingly, Rockland had both changed more and less than I imagined it had. It was still pretty easy to navigate around town, but there were enough new locations and landmarks that a lot of places stood out to me as I drove around, killing time, trying not to be too obvious about where I was going to go. But in my mind, there was really only one place worth visiting. I found myself parking in front of the old Blitz house and could see through the window that someone was inside, upstairs. I took a deep breath. I couldn't believe I was going to do this. I knocked on the door, worried about what I might find. After a very long time, a gentleman came down, who looked like a younger version of myself, but much more tired. I could hear other people milling about upstairs. The sounds were very familiar, like what I remembered from when I lived there all those years ago. Uh, hello? He eventually asked. Who are you? What do you want? You don't know me, but my name is Harry. I used to live here. Excuse me? Not recently. About eight years ago, I said sheepishly. I was going to say, I've been here six months and I haven't seen you before, he said. I should hope so. I only just got into town. But I thought you used to live here. And now you just got into town? He said, confused. I was starting to think he hadn't had any coffee yet, and had truly just woken up. It's a long story. <laughs> I used to live here eight years ago, with a few friends, and we really loved this place. And now one of them is getting married, and I'm in town for the wedding, and we used to live in this place together, so I thought I would come over, take some photos of the old pad, and embarrass everybody at the wedding. I trailed off. I was talking too much. This kid did not seem to be buying it. You know how it goes, right? I added. 
He gave me another blank look, then finally shouted up the stairs into the main part of the pad. Cheryl! Some dude wants to see the place this morning. Do you mind if we have a guest? I could hear from up the stairs someone shout back. Fine! Just stop yelling this early in the morning. The kid then said, She says you can come in, then turned to go up the stairs, leaving the door open for me to walk through. I followed him up, stairs I knew all too well, and had climbed many, many times before. The place was virtually identical to how it was when I lived there. Posters everywhere, the place a complete mess. The decay of college life and young people working part-time jobs and not cleaning up after themselves. It was almost too much like how I remembered it. The gentleman tromped off to the back part of the house, and as I stood on the landing, I saw the door to the secret room, still in place, looking as if I could step right back inside and return to my old routine, if I wanted. Out of the kitchen, a woman popped into the hall. So, who are you? she asked. Uh, Harry. It's a long story. I used to live here about eight years ago, I offered. She looked at me, spatula in hand, dressed, but not like she was ready to leave the house. Like I had interrupted her and she was not happy about it. She finally said. She had big red hair pulled back in a band and had a few visible tattoos on her hands. And I guess it's kind of stupid, but I just wanted to see the place again. Brings back a lot of strange memories. She nodded. Right. So, Harry... Are you going to take up my entire morning with soggy nostalgia, or can we move this along and both get back to our respective days? I sighed. This was probably as close as I was ever going to get again. I could ask to use the restroom, slip inside, and she would never know where I'd gone. chaos of the house waking up in the morning would probably be enough cover for me to sneak out for the wedding. If the place was anything like it was when I used to live there, I could probably easily sneak back in later, too. And... And what? Sorry, I don't mean to be a pest. It really is a long story, and you clearly don't have the time. I'm I'm sorry I interrupted you, I said. She shook her head, confused. It's okay, Harry. It's not every day strange men claim to have lived in my house then apologize before they can even take a look around to back up their cover story. 
Jesus, Harry, you look like you need to get out more. Get out of your head and back into the real world. I stared at her, really unsure where she was going with any of this. She looked a little disappointed, then sighed. Go ahead, look around, but be quick, okay? She returned to the kitchen, and to whatever it was that was cooking. And when you leave, close the door behind you on the way out. I walked a little further into the hall, where I could eye the door to the secret room. I casually said, Hey, I see that door is still next to the bathroom. I put my hand on the knob on the door in question, but something didn't feel right. I started to panic. Hey, uh, any of you kids ever try to open it? I asked. My hand recoiled. It hadn't occurred to me, even for a second that the door might not open again. I could hear Cheryl laugh from the kitchen. It's a decorative door, you jerk. You're worse than Tommy with that stupid shit. Everyone knows that's a door to nowhere, dude. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around. 
to the very end. That was uh, a little bit of some Thanksgiving leftovers that I uh, had lying around, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed uh, And, uh, yeah. I appreciate everybody for uh, stick a, staying to the very, very end. Ramen City Kid, Univac, Mr. X, Jeff Yu, Coelacanth. I, 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 I do hope that uh, uh, Jeff uh, from Harrison is still listening. Uh, 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 thank you. Thank you. And Heather. Ah. Yes, thank you very much, Heather, for uh, being a good part of Hour One earlier uh, and uh, reading that bit from uh, Martin Noel's book. Uh, yeah, you know, actually, uh, Heather uh, has her own uh, radio show that she does uh, out of Rochester, New York, The Sound of Tomorrow, uh, where uh, uh, they have conversations and they play music and there's skits and uh, it's very political, but it's also very personal and, uh, yeah... Uh, so if you enjoyed uh, the bits that Heather contributed in Hour One, uh, you should check out her show. Yes, H, it was uh, very much like a typical share house uh, in the 90s. And I hope I, hope I captured that vibe in, in, in some way or another. Anyway, you guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no show. Let's wrap this one up. And, uh, yeah, join me for the the Thanksgiving meal next year. Uh, We'll do this again. Be seeing you.
Twas the night before Sheena's, and all through the jungle room. All the DJs were stirring, making their cocktails go kaboom. The LP bags were hung by the chimney with care, in the hopes that Mr. Fab soon would be there. The crew were all lit, decked out in their best threads, with a band keeping beat on those boss new drum heads. Rogers got a kooky sweater, and Barno's sporting a cap, while Jan Turkenberg has the dance moves down pat. When out on the turntables, Chris O spun a platter. We all sprang to our feet and danced like mad hatters. Then in through the door with a significant flash, flew in Don Bowles with a huge LP stash. It's lovely to see the festive Roy Santiago trading programming tips with the Mr. Don O. When what to our Hepcat eyeballs should appear but an overdressed Mr. Fab with the other DJs, never fear. On the dance floor, he was so lively and quick as we all grooved and frooved to surf songs so slick. It seemed like the tunes all had obscure fame, yet every single one of us knew them all by name. Everyone brought food. There were plenty of fixins. And when it comes to drinks, we were all nearly six in. To the top of the porch and all through the halls, our DJs were always heard by one and all. There's Alex Kish and Mike Rogers himself. I see Space Brother flipping through records on that shelf. Bill Zabub and Bob Barth are both shaking their heads at the terrible pun that I somehow just said. Wendy Stonehenge and Hysterica are dance floor mavens, and we're laughing at songs picked by DJ Kratoven. Georgie Girl is the peak of fashion and style, and even showed up with another huge record pile. John Nelson and Mark Time are both learning to twerk, while Miss May and Flannery chat in the kitchen and lurk. Sarcophagi and Daryl both like to pose, while Speedo and John P. trade DJ tips like old pros. DJ Babs and M.H. Lee both began to whistle, and you know we all got the It's All Night epistle. We heard Mr. Fab exclaim, quite loud and quite bright, this year we dance to Sheena's all day and all night. Everyone here at Sheena's Jungle Room, in all of our assorted studios and homes, we wish you a sappy hollandaise and plenty of new music throughout the coming year. Now, time to get my freak on. Latest pages. Thank you. 
Thank you.